Talking Point with Kathy Motlatana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It's 9 after 11 o'clock. You're live on the final hour of the Talking Point today. And, of course, uh, we're set to have a a debate, a discussion, really, uh, which is going to focus on the rollout of the vaccine that will be required in South Africa. I mentioned at the beginning of the program that um, we've been told that this is going to be government's biggest project ever, uh, bigger than local and national elections, bigger than the HIV treatment program that the current that the country currently runs that those are just some of the terms that the president himself has used in describing just what kind of a mammoth task it's going to be so we thought we'd invite some experts have them on the line and just speak to us about what it means practically so what are the things that South Africa needs to have in place in order to successfully run this program and as opposed to run it according to its own deadlines? Already we have seen some experts come out and say, well, you know, this idea that people are going to be vaccinated, that 40 million people will be vaccinated in South Africa by the end of 2021 is just a, an ambitious plan that is simply unrealistic when you look at what would practically need to go into getting that done. You'd need to be vaccinating uh, 300,000 people every single day uh, in order to be able to reach those kind of uh, vaccine figures. And that's at least the maths that Professor Shabir Madi has done on this matter. We, of course, also know about the conversations that have been taking place with different pharmaceuticals but uh, and, and the question of equity that keeps coming up. And the reality is that when you look at the figures, it is very clear that the Global South, as it's called, uh, is uh, behind when it comes to accessing vaccines to what what some of the uh, so-called leading world, the the leading countries, uh, they're far behind in terms of what is happening in some of those countries. So uh, the experts are going to be on the line shortly. Before we do that, however, maybe let's just listen to uh, this story by Ndebo Mogobo, who is wrapping up what the president has said so far about the financing of this vaccine. South Africa is in the midst of the second wave of the coronavirus, and so far almost 38,000 people have succumbed to the pandemic. And now for Pretoria, it's a race against time to secure the much-needed and life-saving vaccines. With fears that the country might struggle to raise money to buy these vaccines, President Ramaphosa took the country into confidence on the funding of vaccine procurement. We believe that we've now reached a stage where we will be able to effectively defeat COVID-19 and the vaccine is going to be a major boost to our efforts in fighting COVID-19. Some people have raised issues about the financing thereof and uh, finance is not going to be a problem because we will be able to pay for these vaccines as we order them. He has also announced the establishment of the Interministerial Committee to deal with the rollout program of the vaccine. People are therefore correct in saying they want to know where we're going to get the vaccines, what they will cost, when they are arriving, who are the classes of people are going to get the vaccines first, and the various phases we are going to go through in the distribution 
of the vaccines. And it is in the light of this that we too in government are treating this matter as seriously as our people are. Today, we established an interministerial committee, which will be chaired by the deputy president to ensuring that the whole process of distribution of the vaccination process is well done. Meanwhile, briefing the ANC Progressive Business Forum on the progress in the selection and procurement of the vaccines, Chief Director from the Health Department, Dr. Aquina Tulare, said they have spoken to a number of companies. The first vaccine that we have looked at is the one that is produced by the company called Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine. It has received regulatory approval in the EU and by the FDA in the US, including WHO. Subprofiling is still currently being finalized, but it's almost concluded. The other vaccine that uh, we are looking at is uh, the vaccine that is produced by AstraZeneca in partnership with the Oxford University. It has been approved in the EU and in the UK. Its efficacy is uh, 70%, and the site that we're interested in is called the Serum Institute of India. There are other vaccines that uh, we are looking at. It's Johnson & Johnson. Uh, it's a single-dose uh, vaccine, much easier for administration and also more cost-effective. And then there's another company that uh, we just want to highlight called Moderna. It's a two-dose vaccine. Storage is at minus 20 degrees Celsius. Dr. Tulare also assured South Africans that contingency measures will be in place to deal with all the side effects of the vaccines. There were uh, some questions that related to whether we're going to be monitoring the adverse effects of vaccination. What I also want to indicate is that for the vaccination program, wherever we are going to be vaccinating in the sites, there will be teams of health professionals that will be ready to manage any adverse effect that may arise out of vaccination, including ensuring that there's resuscitation kits and there's the appropriate skill that can ensure that we do not subject the population to adverse effects unduly. And if ever there are adverse effects, they are managed immediately and actively. She also said that from the distribution points to vaccination sites, these vaccines will be guarded by police and soldiers. I am Tebumokobo in Johannesburg. So let's get straight into our conversation then. On the line, we're joined by uh, Fatima Hassan, who is the head of the Health Justice Initiative. Um, Fatima, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. Great to be on the show. Russell Rensberg is a member of the Budget Justice Coalition and Executive Director at the Rural Health Advocacy Program. Uh, Russell, good morning to you. Uh, good morning to the listeners and good morning, everybody. And Professor Keith Engel is the CEO of the South African Institute of Tax Professionals. Uh, Prof, good morning to you. Yes, thank you for inviting me on board. Thank you all for for being available for this conversation. And I know we're going to play a bit of musical chairs, of course, Mm -hmm. when it comes to uh, when some might leave and some might join the conversation. But we'll we'll take it as as we go along. And, and of course, for our listeners, you can be part of this conversation. You can use the the numbers 011-714-2006. That's to call in. You can SMS us on 41391. And the WhatsApp line to use today, 0614-1041. 
0567 on Twitter. It's at SFM Radio, the hashtag SFM Talking Point. Maybe a good place to begin would be getting the perspective of all of you in terms of your own impressions of where we are as a country when it comes to the work that is going into the procurement of a vaccine, but also the plans that need to be underway to ensure the effective rollout of this vaccine. And if we can uh, try and keep it to two minutes for that, it, it will be great. Uh, let me perhaps begin with uh, Fatima. Thanks. So I think, you know, as civil society has been saying in the last few weeks, and these are the issues that we've, we've been raising since early 2020, we do feel that while there's been some movement from government in terms of sharing limited information, uh, there's still a lot of details that have to be attended to, particularly the registration of medicines in the middle of a pandemic. And you just played a clip about some of the approvals that are still sitting with SAPA. So as yet, we don't have a single vaccine that is registered for clinical use and approved for clinical use in South Africa. Um, and so the issues around registration and then the issues around the financing of the vaccine, as well as the decisions that will inform pricing, uh, you know, the ability to access limited supplies given global scarcity is a concern, given that yesterday the independent panel for the WHO released a report which showed that most of Africa, uh, including South Africa, will only probably access uh, limited supplies due to scarcity and hoarding and stockpiling of richer nations and the inability of COVAX to supply you know, all of Africa's needs and the Global South needs that we likely only need to achieve or reach widespread vaccination in 2022-2023. All right, Fatima, thanks for that. So 2022-2023, those are your projections in terms of when South Africa would have been able to, uh, full, to vaccinate the majority of its adult population. Yeah, so this is based on an independent global analysis which was released yesterday and mm-hmm. it builds on reports and predictions as well as, you know, quite informed assumptions that have been shared globally already for months mm-hmm. around the inability of countries in the global south to be able to access uh, limited supplies because mainly a lot of the drug companies are refusing to share their technology and are refusing to assist countries with scaling up manufacturing capacity and support. All right. Let me go to Russell Rensberg. Russell, perhaps your, your, your own impressions of, of, of where we are. Look, I think sometimes we can only work on what we know. And I think the challenges are, are really big as we move forward because this would probably be one of the biggest public health vaccination programs in a, in a generation. I think very few of us know how it will play out. I think so these two different conversations. So on the one side, we have the vaccine acquisition. So far, from what we've heard from government, we haven't seen particular details around that, is that we probably have around 20 million doses confirmed over this year. When they arrive, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that 1.5 million doses are confirmed for healthcare workers. And I think that's probably like the first site to struggle for us because it then brings into play the coordination mechanisms that are needed to ensure an equitable distribution of vaccines between public and private, as well as the various coordination structures that will oversee that. That part we've had very little knowledge on, and I think that will probably um, expose some of the broader challenges um, we're facing as we move forward. Mm. You know, so I think the, 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 the debate is very complex, and I think the, the analysis that Fatima is providing also creates further complexity, because without like, reaching population immunity, it means that the risk of a virus and its impact on our lives, our livelihoods, 
will continue until such a time that the, uh, that the virus is eradicated or people are mm-hmm. vaccinated. So it's very, very difficult time. Uh, Professor Engel, let me bring you in and perhaps also give you an opportunity just to get us kick-started with your own impressions. Um, where we are, look, I think we're running to play catch-up globally. So unfortunately, when it comes to vaccines, I think we're a price taker, not a price maker. So we're only a very small part of the market where everybody else is grabbing in. And so we can only follow with what's happening here. So, I mean, I think the government's doing what it can, but I don't know if our procurement processes are that great um, in place. But, you know, we're really just part of a pack. And everybody, all the countries are, are trying to get this thing at the same time. Now, whether we're moving fast enough, I'm not sure. We're probably part of the global community making a call like everybody else. Do we have any inside track on this? Probably not. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure how ready we are in the sense we're, we're just rushing to stay with the crowd until we're done. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's my view. Uh, Professor Engel, because you're going to have to leave us at 11.30, I just maybe want to uh, get get a bit more insights from you. Right now, the issue of funding seems to be yeah. an incredibly big one uh, because even though there have been assurances that money to procure this vaccine is available, there's the messages that are coming out from government right now also suggest that the money might not be as available as we were told it, it, it would be. Yeah. Well, I think the issue is, is the longstanding issue. The problem is, is we went into COVID-19 already facing recession, already having tapped ourselves out. And that's what the Minister of Finance said. He said, look, we're already out of money and the economy is weak. So where do you get this money from? So what you've seen over the course of several months is government, the lockdown was already we were in a weakened state. The lockdown cost us far too much money, and therefore we're even short now. So now the big battle for Treasury is where do we get this money? And so when you saw the DG speaking about this, basically what the DG is saying is technically all options are on the table. Let's see what we could, but we must get the money. And I think that's what the president is saying. We must get the money. The question is, where do you get this money? And so the debate now is, do we reprioritize in spending? Do we borrow more? Because we're so much in the hole anyway. Do we get to borrow from the IMF or a special source where the interest rates will be low? Or third, do we raise tax? That's where we are. So there's a, we're definitely going to get the money somehow. I do believe the president is committed to that. The problem is where... And every choice he has is very poor because we're already tapped out already. Of course, the the outrage and the backlash over the raising of these funds through increased taxes, that has received the most attention. And uh, that seems to be the one that people are saying, but no, why must we pay more tax? We're already overtaxed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this issue has been on the table for a while. So what's been happening is there's been this discussion of solidarity tax about already about eight, nine months. The problem with the argument was is there's very little solidarity. And then people said, well, how long is this solidarity tax going to go on? So then they've, that argument died away. But then they said, well, if it's just for the vaccine, it'll only be one year. So that's where the argument suddenly says, well, people, I guess, could pull together for one year for an unexpected cost. The problem is 
that the market is or the economy is already tapped out. Mm. And if you're going to get 20 billion, you're not going to get it all from the rich people. You think you can, but it, it doesn't work that way. Let's say they want to raise the income tax rate. They're going, there's only 7,000 or maybe 10,000 super rich people. So if they're going to raise taxes, it'll ultimately fall on people who are making maybe a million rand or more in order to get the money they need. So, and already people are having a very bad year, so they're already tapped out. Mm. So the question is, just by relabeling a tax, does that change anything? Well, it gives us a little more sympathy with government, but because of the long history, there's very little sympathy. And so what you saw Mike Schuster and Davi Ruth say was, you've got to cut things like SAA. Get rid of your junk. I know you're doing better with it, but really reprioritize and make some sacrifice. Government needs to come first. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that it hasn't happened in that way. So of course we've seen the way the the, the freezes on the government salaries in order again as an attempt to try and have more money yeah. available in the budget. But none of these solutions actually seem to be working. Yeah. Well, the problem is that they did the government. You know, they they in violation of their labor agreement. The biggest problem for government is we know that one there's a problem of corruption. <laughs> And we're not, at the moment, we're not getting our money back. We're not even, so there's, I know that you can see the president is trying, but it's not moving fast enough. The cuts across the board are easy, but now you've faced the labor unions. The real thing that government has to do if they want to make cuts is actually terminate departments that just don't make sense. And it's not just SAA, where you have to let go a lot of the dead wood. We're not talking about the police. We're not talking about... The, um, the, the teachers, but there's a lot of bureaucratic mid-level management in all of our parastatals and all of our government that needs to go. And they are the people who are the decision makers. So the decision makers won't cut their own salaries. And that's why there's no, no faith in this situation. And so then they start turning back to tax. The problem is it really is very tapped out, but maybe it's the, it's the path of least resistance. Even if people will complain, will they pay? The problem is, as you raise taxes, people are actually now bailing out of the system and going illegal. Oh, Professor Keith Engel, let me thank you so much for being part of this conversation. I am going to allow you to go because I know you have other commitments uh, in your diary. Fatima Hassan, Hassan Head and um, Russell Rinsberg uh, are still uh, on the line. Perhaps, Russell, let me come to you, you know, um, j- just on the issue of the funding for this vaccine and its rollout program. Are you surprised that this is the kind of conversation that we're having in January 2021 when we started implementing lockdown in April 2020? Look, I think if a pandemic has told us, uh, I'm told as anything, has told us that our lives are completely interlinked. You can't separate the people from the economy, right? And I, and I think all the economy from the people. I think we also have to take cognizance of the fact that we remain one of the most unequal societies in the world on all different levels, on income inequality and generational mobility in terms of people moving out of poverty. You know, there was a study from UCT that came out a little bit before the lockdown saying that our inequality levels are literally the same as what they were pre-1994. So when we talk about how do we finance this vaccine, I think the things that have been, the proposals that have been put on the table so far, 
was that a large portion of the vaccine would be funded out of the fiscus. And then, obviously, we would have contributions from medical schemes because it's the central procurement formula, and they would pay for the vaccines that they would use. We would have then contributions from business to vaccinate employees, and we're thinking about companies like ShopRite and Woolworths, where a lot of low-earning workers don't have access to medical schemes. And then lastly, there was this idea of solidarity contributions from business and from the public at large. But when we move back and we go back to the fiscal contribution, which will be the largest, let's say it's 20 billion that we need, and we're going to have to raise 15 billion from the fiscus. If we raise that money from the fiscus, it's likely that we're going to have, we already have a pressured um, public purse, and those cuts will probably have it will, will lead to a, a reprioritization of budgets. And reprioritization is a nice euphemistic word. But what it actually means is, is a cut to basic services that 80% of the population rely on. So I think we need to have a conversation about wealth taxes, right? We have to look at, and if you think about the relief measures that were presented in this pandemic, the middle, the middle and upper middle classes and the rich have probably benefited more from the measures presented by the president, like the interest rates cuts and they saw savings in their bonds. They, they could easily adjust from working in offices and to working at home. So they were largely unaffected, right? So for my view, now is the best time to introduce the solidarity tax including a range of wealth taxes. We can look at our corporate um, taxes system, our taxes on dividends, our taxes on capital gains, and our taxes and inheritance taxes, so that we can do what the president said in his speech in March last year, that we will emerge out of this pandemic a much more equal and united society. All right. Unfortunately, the way we're going at the, more, at the moment, we're like to, likely to increase division and further dilute socioeconomic rights. So I think now's the time to introduce wealth tax. We're going to continue this conversation. Of course, we're talking to uh, Fatima Hassan, Russell Rensberg. We'll also be uh, joined by uh, another panelist as we enter into the second half of this conversation. It's 11.30, though. Let me go to the headlines. Uh, Nandika Bjorkas is standing by. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.3 FM in Rustenburg. You're live on The Talking Point uh, and we're having a conversation around the uh, vaccine procurement process of South Africa and also the rollout of this vaccine. What are the different issues that various experts are looking at when uh, it comes to the proposed plans? What are some of the the pitfalls? Where could it go right? Where could it potentially go wrong? Uh, It's important to have these discussions and uh, we're taking your calls on 011-714-2007 on WhatsApp at 0614-104-107. You can also send those SMSs on 41391. Of course, the issue that we've begun with is that around the funding of the vaccine and where that money should come from. Uh, Fatima, let me give you an opportunity perhaps to weigh in on that issue. Sure, thanks. So I think Russell is right. You've got to spend billions to basically save trillions because we have a devastating socioeconomic crisis, not just in South Africa, but in the rest of Africa and the world. So we can't stress enough that you have to find the money, and it's really good that the DG for National Treasury yesterday committed publicly that the money would be found. But the unfortunate thing is that we will only know what the financing model is in February, because for some inexplicable reason, even though we're in the middle of a crisis, our government is saying that they will only share those details in the budget speech, and I think that's just a little bit too late. 
said, because at the moment there's just a lot of speculation about what it's going to entail. And like Russell said, there's different indications of where the money could come from. My point is that even if I was a billionaire and gave you 40 billion rand tomorrow to go buy all the vaccines, Mm -hmm. there are no supplies. There aren't sufficient supplies for the whole of Africa, and certainly we don't want South Africa to, you know, to be buying up all the stock and then other countries don't access it. The analysis that I referred to earlier in my introduction shows that as of yesterday, the WHO has, uh, has shown that only 25 shots, not 25,000, not 25 million, 25 have been administered outside of clinical trials in the whole of Africa. So all of the supplies are actually sitting uh, in the global north and, and with richer nations. So so money mm-hmm. is just one part of the issue. The, the main issue is going to be, are you going to be able to secure in an expedited basis sufficient supplies? And if companies cannot meet supply uh, needs or the demand from different countries in Africa and the global south, then we really have to urgently attend to the issue of licensing and scaling up manufacturing capacity outside of those companies. Mm. And, you know, th- that's going to form part of our conversation because uh, th- that scaling up of technologies, being able to produce in multiple countries, it's going to also require that the private pharmaceuticals come on board, right? Yeah, definitely. One of the key demands that has been made by global society civil society in the last two weeks has been an open letter to all the CEOs of drug companies saying that you've got to share the vaccine know-how. We're in the middle of an unprecedented global crisis. Mm. The technology has to be transferred and shared. And on top of that, you also need to be more transparent in your pricing. I mean, I can give you some of the numbers uh, where billions of dollars have actually been spent in accelerating vaccine research, where these companies have benefited from public funding and public support and, you know, clinical trials in multiple countries, uh, and yet that technology is residing with them exclusively and they get to decide which company gets to manufacture where, how the markets will be segmented and how the mm-hmm. prices will be determined. And, mm-hmm. and I really think that's a problem when you're facing a crisis of this nature where the numbers of fatalities are increasing. I mean, we're all dealing with workplaces, with families, with, with colleagues who are dying, who are getting sick. Uh, and, and so this, the situation has to be stopped. Effectively, Fatima, the profit-making agenda, which is what partly, you know, pharmaceuticals also exist to do as businesses, that has not uh, diminished under this pandemic. No, in fact, some of the reports from reputable organizations like MSF, for example, has shown that already companies have recouped the investment. And I think the issue has to be, you know, quite a detailed examination of how much public funding and support actually went into these clinical trials. Mm. And so the transparency that we're calling for is that we can't take your word that it's a low profit price or a no profit price. Show us the data. Show mm. us all the research and development costs. Show us your marketing costs. Show us the different uh, conversations and the different reports that have been prepared internally for your companies to prove to us that this is a low profit to no profit price. So, you know, we're seeing that letters are being leaked and phone calls are being leaked. I'd really like to listen to the phone calls that were happening with Pfizer executives where mm. they decided in the middle of a, of a global crisis of this nature that they wouldn't share the technology, that that is the price that they would charge. We know there's four different price lists floating around, around the world right now. Right? There needs to be international benchmarking. How can our government decide on a price if you don't know what other countries are paying for? COVAX is saying that's a secret. That's a confidential agreement. We've been told there are NDAs in place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is the Western Cape is apparently negotiating with manufacturers? It's, it's, it's unheard of that we actually don't know what the different prices are that's floating around, and particularly we're going to be taxed 
or if, if, if our budgets for normal, ordinary services are going to be reprioritized for the vaccines, then the public has a right to know what the prices are and the basis for those prices, the assumptions behind it, because we, in, in the end, are going to be funding it. Medical scheme members are the public. They are low-income workers who belong to medical schemes, the teachers, the nurses, people who, who work in government. So all of their money is going to be subsidizing the vaccine rollout. So we definitely, you know, I think have to demand greater transparency and the right to know. Let me bring in uh, uh, on, onto the show uh, Dr. Stavros Nikolaou. He's a chairman of uh, the Business for South Africa's Health Working Stream. Uh, good morning and thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Uh, good morning and uh Good morning to all the listeners as well. Thank you. One of the things that, that has come up right now is that around equity and just already how uneven a distribution of this vaccine we are seeing emerge. It was spoken about before um, any kind of vaccine was discovered. How do you think the situation was allowed to get to where it is today? So, look, I think uh, from a business perspective, and that's who Business for South Africa represents. We, we represent the depth and breadth of, uh, of business across all sectors. That's healthcare, banking, mining. Uh, virtually all, if not all, sectors are represented through the B4SA um, formation. Our, our position has always been that you, you cannot prioritize a particular sector over another. You know, human life is a human life. And we've always supported at the outset. <coughs> Uh, the even distribution of vaccines uh, globally, um, with a full understanding that you know Africa sits at 13% of the global population, but it's, it's received less than 1% of the vaccine thus far. So we've been very conscious at the outset on that, and we will continue calling for an even distribution of the vaccines globally speaking. If I get a little more granular into our own country, and we'll all recognise that. South Africa carries around 50% of the, of the COVID burden on the African continent. And I know there are many reasons why that is the case. And that's not where I'm going to uh, in making this particular point. But what I am saying is when you're sitting with 50% of the burden on the continent, um, there is a case to be made around distribution of the vaccines for Africa um, along the lines of where the disease burden resides. I think that's a fair and equitable way of of distributing the vaccines. And then lastly, uh, just dialing back into South Africa again, um, the, the private and public sectors, together with the Ministerial Advisory Committee, are giving input into a what we call a risk algorithm. In other words, how do you prioritize on a, on a, a hierarchical needs basis? Uh, the distribution and administration of the vaccine over the three phases that the government is setting out uh, the rollout plan along. Uh, We know that the first phase, justifiably so in my opinion, will target uh, healthcare workers, um, and that's across the board. These are the most exposed citizens in our country, and uh, business is supportive of them getting it first. There's around 1.3 to 1.5 million healthcare workers, and the plan is to vaccinate those first, uh, sorry, that group first in quarter one. Uh, we're then moving to, into phase two and three, and that's where the risk profiling of patients kicks in, 
And um, the basic risk profiles, it's a lot more complex than this, but I'm keeping it rather simple. All right. Dr. Stavro, let me tell you what I'm going to do. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to allow you to to to, to finish just with uh, with your own reflections and the breakdowns that you've been giving us around uh, the COVID-19 and uh, the plans around rolling out of this vaccination. You're live on The Talking Point. I'm back with the guests, and we'll also then open up the lines. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105 FM in Mokopane. Live on the talking point. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're talking about many different aspects that feed into our ability as a country to not just procure a vaccine for COVID 19, but also um, to ensure an effective rollout of this vaccine and lots of different issues that have already come out so far from our panelists. Of course, coming up at noon is the update at noon with Sakina Kamwendo. They'll be taking a look at the health minister, Zulim his visit to Toyando and certain other areas in Limpopo following a dramatic increase of COVID-19 cases there. They'll also pay attention to the the story around Sasa and the services at its office in Belleville and uh, what the status update there is. And of course, uh, plenty more stories coming up at noon with the update at noon with Sakina Kamwendo. On SAFM. So let's continue our chat then. Uh, Dr. Stavlo, I believe that um, I, Stavros, rather, I, I had interrupted you while you were still breaking down the issues of the rollout of, of, of a vaccine. So you support the first batch going to uh, the health workers. C- correct. I, I think there is a sound logic behind it. These are, this is a segment of our population that has the most over are the segments of the population that we can least afford to have unproductive, either because they become very sick because of the COVID uh, virus or alternatively even fatalities. We, we then move to the second phase of vaccination. And the, this is a phase where essential workers and that segment of the population that is either elderly or elderly and has comorbidities or just has comorbidities. And what do we mean by comorbidities? Uh, These are certain diseases that increase uh, your risk exposure to to COVID, to the virus, and also the ones where if you do contract the virus, those patients are the ones that will become a lot sicker than a healthy person. So with this uh, second wave that we are going through, we've seen... Uh, that the virus, this variant that we're dealing with, uh, is a lot more contagious. So a lot more people have become sick. And be- when a lot more people become sick, it places a further burden and stress on your healthcare facilities. And that's when your fatalities go up. They don't go up necessarily because the virus has become more virulent. It, it goes up in part because uh, you start running out of hospital beds and oxygen and all the other things. So there's a sound logic to vaccinate uh, the categories of, of the population that I've just, uh, I've just illustrated in that second phase. The third and final phase, of course, will be the phase for the rest of the population. 
So that would be anyone that is 18 years and older that doesn't fit in the earlier category would be vaccinated in that, in that final phase. So there's a very clear hierarchical need structure here based on, on the population's risk profiling. Mm-hmm. Risk both in terms of exposure to the disease, but also in terms of how vulnerable individuals are getting sick from the disease. Dr. Nicola, it was quite surprising to a lot of people to hear that South Africa was struggling to procure vaccines when uh, part of what we saw last year was the announcement, including by government, of different um, pharmaceuticals, Aspen, Johnson & Johnson, that were committing to manufacture and produce uh, some of their vaccines in in South Africa. As the working stream, what do you know about what may have happened there? Look, I don't want to um, hypothesize what might or might not have happened, and I really can't speak on behalf of government, so I can only give you businesses' assessments of the situation. Mm. I think, firstly, procuring these vaccines at, at this level of speed when you've got the global constraints, the global supply constraints that we're experiencing, and, and they're really unprecedented. Um, in fact, someone equated this to, to, to Hunger Games, um, the, the show Hunger Games, where everyone just looks after themselves. Some people call it national, uh, you know, nationalism, or an emergence of a vaccine nationalism. Many different ways of describing it. So what we know is this is a very complex process and there's significant uh, global constraints to the extent that some countries grab vaccines. Mm-hmm. That was a vaccine grab. So we mm-hmm. know that much. Uh, it looks like our government depended heavily on COVAX, the COVAX facility, which is a, a multilateral facility that is meant to equalize the supply of, uh, of these vaccines. And it, it looks like at face value right now, COVAX might give you some form of equalization, but doesn't give you the speed. So our government now has entered into bilateral relationships, commercial relationships with various vaccine suppliers and or manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And I think they've been giving a detailed update. Um, It's probably not detailed enough for many people, but I also recognize that they are subject to certain confidentiality constraints right now. I hope those will be lifted uh, soon and that the public will get proper visibility. But I think from where we're sitting as business, I think we've seen definite progress in the last 10 days. I think these bilaterals have been secured, term sheets have been signed. And I think our government should be in a position in the next few days to provide the detail that the public have been looking for. Has, has private business entered into any agreements with these pharmaceuticals? Um, business will not be contracting directly or indirectly with, uh, with these vaccine manufacturers. Um, government has made it clear, and, and business has supported this, that government will be doing the procurement of the vaccines precisely for the reason that you don't want a uneven or disproportionate distribution of these vaccines across the country. So the private sector is staying out of the direct procurement. Government will be doing that. Where business is supporting government, and we're doing this on a formalized basis, Business for South Africa is representing business and the private healthcare sector um, in in the coordination of the rollout program. We will support government at the supply chain level 
mobilizing inoculation resources. So these are all the the general practices, the pharmacies, uh, businesses that have got occupational health facilities like the mining companies. So everywhere where we can mobilize resources, uh, human resources and otherwise, that um, would complement and support government's rollout, that is exactly what we're going to be doing. But we're not entering into the direct contracting and or procurement of vaccines. All right. So we're continuing our conversation then. Uh, the numbers to dial zero double one seven one four two double zero six. 714 Let me go to the phone line. Simpiwe in Richards Bay. Good morning to you, Simpiwe. Keep it short and sweet for us, please. Go for it. Yes, yes, Katie. Uh, I just wanted to check. I haven't had uh, your panelist talking to or touching base to the 500 billion rent issue. Mm. Uh, and, and for me, that is a key matter because that should be the starting point. Um, the government has not accounted for that, and yet uh, we we had a very small or short uh, grocery list, you know, in, in defining that list we had the vaccine. So it shouldn't have been difficult for government to prioritize. So I just want to get a point from, from, from your panelists. Why are they not talking about the 500 billion rent as a point of departure mm. and then uh, give us other options? But I think that should be the starting point. Okay, thanks for that, Simpiwe. Nkunzi in Peter Maritzburg, good morning. Morning, Kate. You know, maybe you have just touched on this issue a little bit, but I'm just surprised and uh, I don't know how can a country like South Africa not be able to manufacture its own vaccine. We mm. are going all over the world now, begging with our, our hands, uh, asking for people to give us cheap drugs. I mean, South Africa has skills, South Africa has expertise. Has the government really, really invested in ensuring that we develop our own vaccines? Mm. You know, thanks, Katie. All right, Nkunzi, thanks for that call. Fatima, I'm going to... I'm going to give you a first chance just to go uh, for to respond just to some of our callers and, and your own reflections on some of the things that uh, Dr. Strevlau has Stavros rather uh, has been saying. Very briefly, please. Thank you, and, and hi, Stavros. Good to meet again. So, first, I think it's important that business has actually reconfirmed its commitment to equity and equitable allocation. I think that's really important because uh, right now we're in a situation where one province feels that it wants to do its own thing, while business and the private health sector and medical schemes are firmly behind the idea of you know one country, one plan, and equitable acquisition and allocation. And I think that's really important and, and well done to business for agreeing to that constitutional principle. The second in respect of your callers is that we actually did participate in clinical research. We're participating in four trials. They haven't been unblinded yet. People who are on the placebo haven't received the vaccine. And the trials were conducted without guaranteeing post-trial access. So we actually contributed to the scientific body of knowledge globally so that these vaccines could be authorized on an emergency basis and used in other parts of the world. But we're basically at the mercy of these drug companies now where we're begging for access. Um, I think the important thing also that Stavros mentioned was that while, while business is not procuring directly, uh, we do know that Aspen, for example, has uh, signed an agreement with Johnson & Johnson for fill and finish, and, you know, we really need clarity on whether that is just only for exports or whether some of those supplies, uh, we've heard the number of 9 million could potentially be for South Africans. I think that needs clarity. And, and lastly, in terms of our own manufacturing capacity, we know that COVAX sort of pre-selected BioVac, but we haven't had any further information about whether they will proceed with BioVac, whether BioVac is actually going to get the uh, manufacturing know-how to 
to potentially manufacture any one of the vaccines that's currently in the COVAX phase. Thanks. All right. Russell, let me give you a chance here. Also, very briefly, please. Uh, look, uh, again, I'm, I'm strongly encouraged by the broader social compact and how everybody is in the health sector and business sector in particular are working together to ensure that we get access to vaccines and that they're equitably distributed. I think our, our challenge probably more comes on, around on the coordination and particularly with the risk profiling that Savas just made mention to now, you know, which becomes incredibly difficult. So when we look at people living with comorbidities, for instance, to date, uh, the leading evidence suggests that people most affected by COVID and likely to, to suffer fatalities from it are people living with uncontrolled diabetes and hypertension. Now, if we look at our country, with diabetes in particular, you know, 5 million people live with diabetes, but only a third are on treatment. How are we going to, so literally 3 million people are at risk, but they currently don't know their status, so they would not be able to qualify for priority access to the vaccine because they wouldn't know that they're living with comorbidities. So the risk is higher in the public sector. There's also some challenges around how the vaccine will be distributed because based on what's out there, even though we'll have a broader coordination framework, it seems that we have two separate rollout strategies, one in the Mm -hmm. private sector and one in the public sector. And how we can ensure real equity by ensuring that that your ability to pay doesn't give you priority access to the vaccine. And I think greater transparency is needed on that particular risk profiling, mm. right? Because normally when we have these kind of rationing decisions, I think broad groups need to participate into it. And these things have happened really behind in closed meetings where broader society, and particularly civil society, or people living with priority conditions have not been able to participate. So that's my only sort of risk takeaway from it. And mm. I think it can create complications in terms of how the vaccines roll out. And maybe one final point is, based on what we're learning from elsewhere in the world, are we taking some of the lessons around the difficulties with maintaining um, access or or distribution to priority groups? And how do we avoid wastage? Because many of the vials that will be distributed aren't single-dose vials, and they'll go into the facility where they will then be obviously distributed per shot. You know, so we also make these vaccines are very precious are we looking at how we can ensure effective rollout and minimum wastage so that more people can can, can access at least the first shot. Thank you. All right. Thanks for that, Russell. Uh, Dr. Nicolau, let me me come back to you and perhaps uh, get your own reflections. But if you can also just answer uh, the the point that that Fatima was raising there around the deal that Aspen has with Johnson & Johnson and, you know, just if, if there's any plans for some of those vaccines to stay in the country. Thanks very much. Um, so I'm just going to come into on two issues. Um, and then unfortunately, I have to dial out at 12. So it's a good uh, hearing from you as well. Um, let, let me address uh, the issue that Fatima raised first. And then I'm just going to make a comment around, uh, around the budgetary allocations. There. Um, John, Johnson & Johnson entered into a manufacturing agreement with Aspen of South Africa to manufacture... Uh, a, a yet undisclosed quantum of um, of uh, COVID vaccines or the candidate COVID vaccine of Johnson and Johnson. This would be one of the contract manufacturing sites that J and J are using globally. Um, the stock that gets manufactured um, is under the full control of Johnson and Johnson, so they would be responsible for allocating in that stock to. 
any country around the world, including South Africa. Uh, so that decision-making doesn't lie with, with Aspen, unfortunately. However, what I can say is over the past few days, and I think this was also publicly announced yesterday, um, is that our government and J&J have made significant progress in securing a quantum for South Africa. And that quantum, I think, will become a significant contributor towards the overall requirement of the country. Mm-hmm. I think that was, for me, a very positive development. Um, if I may just speak uh, very briefly on on the 500 billion um, that one of the one of the callers uh, raised earlier, uh, I think the point to be made here is that this has to be, and, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of government. This this has to be viewed on a solidarity basis across all sectors of society, and I think business recognises that again, and I think business is working on a number of initiatives right now where we can augment or enhance the the solidarity principle. The Solidarity Fund has been at the centre of a lot of these solidarity initiatives in the first wave of the pandemic and is likely to feature prominently in in the second wave and in particular in the vaccine rollout. So business is looking at, firstly, at at, at a medical scheme level to have a subsidy uh, the details haven't been finalised as yet, but to have some form of subsidy mm. um, where you get for every dose that a covered life, as we call it in the medical schemes, is, is received or is administered, that you would have an equivalent amount going into an uncovered life in the country. And there's also uh, work afoot um, for businesses to make a contribution this could be contributions monetary-wise or in kind, where you start vaccinating an equivalent amount of uncovered lives to those lives that you vaccinated in your own business. So I think business is working on those various initiatives. And I think I'll leave it at that. And if you don't mind, I need to dial out. All right. So, so, so we've also come to the end of our program, right? So much to talk about, such little time. It's funny how an hour just flies by, but uh, I hope that that conversation has been insightful. It feels like it should be part one of uh, uh, probably a five-series installment. It's 12 o'clock. Sakina Kamwendo is standing by. I'm going to hand over to her and the team. We're back with you again uh, tomorrow afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. Sakina, good afternoon.